Oh, I love it. Hey, good morning, everyone. My name's Ben. Welcome to Four Corners Church. For all the dads in the room, happy Father's Day. Men, a lot of times when you go to church on Father's Day, uh, you know what happens. On Mother's Day, we celebrate moms about how awesome and nice they are, but on Father's Day, we beat men up. Uh, that's not going to happen today. You don't have to worry about that. I am fortunate to have the privilege to work with some guys who are incredible dads. Uh, I'm privileged to be in a church with guys who make incredible dads, or just, even if those aren't dads, they're just good men. And I wanted to tell you just what a privilege it is for me to be in the company of the caliber of men that we have in this room. And so guys, today, I'm just uh, going to encourage you. We're going to go to God's Word, and uh, there'll be a handful of things for dads, but specifically men, you're doing a good job. And I'm really, really proud of you. And I get to talk to a lot of pastors. And the truth is, evidently, in a lot of churches, that's not true. Men aren't engaged. They leave all the work to women. And they don't press in spiritually. They don't help make it happen. But that's just not true here. So way to go. Can we give it up to all the men, especially the dads in the room? Very proud of you. Honored to be here among you. Well, today we're going to kick off a brand new message series called Seven Churches, and we're going to look at the New Testament book of Revelation. We're going to park here for a few weeks. I haven't done much of this content um, in, in the church in our 13 plus years as a church. I haven't done much of this. So this is the first time from this stage I'm diving in very, very deep. So if you have a Bible and you want to go to Revelation chapter one, in your message notes, the entire chapter is there. We won't get through all of that today. But over the next few weeks, we're going to spend time in chapter 1, 2, 3, and then we'll touch into chapter 4 and make some reference to a handful of other things as we round out the summer uh, together. But I want to start by telling you my introduction to this stuff. When I was about five years old, my parents committed their lives to Christ. We weren't really a church family until then. But when they got in, they got in all the way. And the church I attended spent a lot of time talking about the second coming of Jesus, which is an honest to goodness biblical doctrine, all right? It basically is the idea that Jesus came the first time. He lived a sinless life, gave his life on a cross, was resurrected from the tomb. And Jesus, while he was here, said that when he, in the future, he's going to come back again to earth and he's going to finish the work that he started when he came the first time that we should be ready for him to come back. And my church that I grew up in talked about that all the time. And Somewhere around the time that I was in junior high, I'm starting to transition from it being simply my parents' faith to trying to figure out what the faith means for me personally. And because I was in a place, I think, that talked about this a lot, because I didn't understand theology very much, because I wasn't fully developed, still am not, but all those things conspired that on occasion, this doctrine of the second coming of Jesus unnerved me a bit. Let me give you a couple examples. Like, when my parents went away to the store and they said, hey, we'll be back at X time, and X time came and went and they weren't back, I was pretty sure that Jesus had come back. Pretty sure. This is how sure I was. This was back in the day, no cell phones, no caller ID, no push button. Everybody had rotary phones. And next to our phone hanging in the kitchen was a list of phone numbers, and one of them was our pastor. And more than once, guys, seriously, more than once, I called my pastor when I thought the rapture had occurred to see if he'd answer the phone. And when he did, I just hung up. And I was pretty sure that I at least had a few more minutes left. I'm not lying. This week, I was sharing some of that story like with my siblings who all had a similar experience. And my sister says to us, this week she says, so my daughter had a moment where she was alone. She got this like fright inside of her. She thought that maybe Jesus had come back and she'd missed it. And she's telling this to her mom, who's my sister. And my sister says to her, well, why didn't you just call me? And she said, mom, I knew if I called you, you would have answered because you'd have been left just like I was. <laughs> exactly. And I'm like, that's not a good thing to say at all. all right? So I come to this a little emotional. Uh, I come to it with a lot of training and conversation about it, but I don't come to it with crystal clear answers on all the questions that are raised in this topic. So what we're going to do is we're going to spend our time in the first few verses of Revelation chapter 1. For some of you, this will be new. For some of you, this will be a return to childhood. For some of you, you've heard some stuff about it. But today, we're going to have the opportunity to begin a journey together that I think is going to be eye-opening for you. In fact, the book of Revelation is meant to open your eyes. It really is to some very important stuff that a lot of times, just the way life happens, just our background, just where we are, we don't think about deeply enough. And we're going to have an opportunity for the next few weeks to do that. And today, I want to take you on the front end of this journey and hopefully reveal some stuff 
to you. But when we do it, there are a couple of extremes that we have to avoid. So on your message notes, let me give you the first extremes that we have to avoid. The first one is, is that some people are obsessed or terrified of the second coming of Jesus. And we're supposed to avoid that. This is not meant to terrify you. Uh, this is not meant to obsess over, all right? I grew up in, uh, in high school in the, in the mid to late uh, uh, 1980s, which makes me about 37 years old. You can do the math. And um, yeah, you no know math people in the room. That's awesome. You let that one go. All right, and so in 1988, there came out a book and it sold a lot of copies called 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 88, which means you have all missed the rapture you're in for, a, you know, it's going to be interesting, right? So 88 came and went, New Year's Eve, 89, somewhere around February, the guy that had written that book came out with a new book. No, I'm not, you can Google this, fact check me here. He came out with a new book called 89 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 89. And what he said was he had missed an important point and missed it by a few months. Clearly, this stuff is the kind of stuff people obsess over. You can find out all kinds of stuff. It even makes its way into popular literature about what the end of the world is going to look like. And it certainly is a biblical doctrine. Jesus made it clear in a lot of his language that while he was going to go away, he would come back. And he gave instructions to his followers. And so one of the extremes to avoid as we dive in is not to obsess or to walk in fear. In fact, this, supposed, this stuff is supposed to comfort us. And historically, you can study this stuff. Historically, whenever the followers of Jesus, whenever Christians were in a rough time, they would turn to the pages of the book of Revelation and a few other places in Paul's writings and Jesus's words, and they would find great comfort in the words. And typically in seasons of the Christian life, when things were going fairly well and there wasn't a lot of persecution and you weren't getting your head cut off if you were a follower of Jesus, nothing bad was happening. In those times, the book of Revelation kind of falls on hard times and nobody really thinks about the end because life here and now is so good, all right? So the first extreme to avoid, don't get obsessed about this stuff, don't get terrified. But here's the other extreme that I think is more appropriate for the American church and honestly, probably our church. It's we need to avoid the reality that a lot of people rarely think about the second coming of Jesus. That's the second blank. Some people rarely think about it. And Jesus talked about this a lot. He really did. In fact, after talking about money, the second most frequently talked about topic by Jesus is his return. Not his first coming, but his second coming. So it's clearly a big deal to him. In the New Testament, the second coming of Jesus is referenced three times more than any other doctrine. Paul talks about it all the time. An entire book, Revelation, is kind of dedicated to future events, all culminating and, and, and taking its fullest form in the coming of Jesus to earth a second time. So it's a big deal. And maybe like you're like a lot of folks, even me to some extent, you're like confused about all this stuff. Here's the good news. The book of Revelation, the, the title of that book is the English translation from a Greek word that we transliterate to mean, uh, to, to say apocalypse, apocalypto, the apocalypse. And the word apocalypse has taken on a unique meaning in our culture. We refer to a apocalyptic times like when the zombies come. And you got to be ready, you know, you know how that works. Or when some kind of dystopian thing happens in our culture, it's an apocalyptic event happens and everything changes and the world is upside down. But really, the word apocalypse and the word revelation mean the same thing. It means the unveiling. The word apocalypse and revelation is the unveiling. And so in these 22 chapters, there's going to be a lot of stuff unveiled. I like to use the word unmasked. You're going to Find out some stuff. The, the curtain's going to be pulled back. You're going to get a chance to peer in to a few things. So I'm excited to go on this journey with you. I hope you are with me, but let me just let you know a handful of things. I'm not going to, for instance, talk much about Nikolai Carpathian. You know who this is? There's like three giggles in the room because you read the books called Left Behind. Some of you did. And when you read them, you read about Nikolai Carpathian, who was the beast referenced in Revelation. Now, I'm not going to talk about that because that's fiction. Fiction based on some things. It's one guy's approach to maybe how it may go down. And there's all kinds of approaches. When I was a kid, people talked about the mark of the beast, a passage in Revelation, and the beast would have a number 666, six, six, 
right? And so when I was a kid, Ronald Reagan was president, but his real name is Ronald Wilson Reagan, and all three of his names have six letters. Clearly, Ronald Reagan was the beast, which of course isn't true, um, because as far as I'm concerned, it's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and Reagan. So clearly that's not true. That's the way, you know. So there's all kinds. In the, in the 70s, it was Henry Kissinger was the beast, because he had this Jewish background and he was doing funny things that a lot of people didn't like. And today, perhaps, you can turn on television somewhere around Channel 43 and maybe somebody will suggest to you that Vladimir Putin is the Antichrist. I, we're not going to get into any of that stuff. You can have your opinion about who the Antichrist is. I've met a few three-year-olds who I was pretty certain that if you were to lift up the hair on the back of their head, you'd see 666. I don't know. I don't know who the beast is, but we are going to reveal some stuff. And I think you'll find it very, very helpful, encouraging. So let me give you a couple more points before we get into the passage. Let me tell you what the point of Revelation is. The point of Revelation is not to give you details for idle speculation about his second coming. It's okay to speculate. In fact, much of what we have to do with these passages is speculate. Now, it's not all that we have to do, but a lot of what we have to do is piece together stuff that we don't have specific information on. That's called, in theological studies, speculative theology. That's okay. That's healthy. It's good to do that. But speculative theology is never meant to take the place of the revealed theology that the Bible is explicit on. But sometimes in some places, it seems to, like this is the favorite stuff to talk about. This is more important. This is what gets everybody jazzed up. But biblically, the priority is on revealed theology, not speculative theology. All right? So we're not here to get information so we can just satisfy idle curiosity, although I bet some of it does get stoked and, it, and you might get some satisfaction. The point is to motivate you to go and tell people about Jesus' first coming. That's really the point. And this is what, as a pastor, I'm going to try to drive home over and over and over again. As we look at this book of the Bible given to a guy by the name of, given through a guy by the name of John, the whole point I'm going to try to do is use it to reveal to us the point, which is to get serious about Jesus's first coming. And the way this theology kind of works biblically is as Jesus comes the first time and he inaugurates his work. His term begins. We use the word inauguration with presidents. They get elected, but then it gets inaugurated. Jesus' first coming kind of inaugurates with the baptism of Jesus, where he's commissioned to go out and to do his work, but it's not completed. His work gets completed. His term is complete in the second coming, where he finishes the work that he started way back then, in our case, a couple thousand years ago. And so the book of Revelation is going to reveal for us a handful of things. Now, in your message notes, there's three open categories. I want to talk about the setting and the seven letters. I want to talk about the genre of this literature because it'll help us understand it. The setting of the book of Revelation is, is that somewhere about 60 years after Jesus has gone on, that is, he came to the earth, he died, he was resurrected, he visits with his followers after his resurrection. They see him. They know he was dead. They have eyewitnesses that he's alive. And he goes back to heaven and he gives work for his people to do. And about 60 years has passed. And they're doing the work. They really are. I mean, they're after it. But they got some opposition. So somewhere around AD 90-ish, the opposition's pretty rough. And some of the early Christian leaders who were eyewitnesses, they've been killed. For instance, Peter, who walked with Jesus, he's been hung upside down. There's been martyrs in the church, people who were killed literally for their faith. But there's one disciple who outlives them all. His name's John. John may have been the youngest disciple of the 12, possibly Peter is the oldest. We don't know that, but Peter's kind of has early leadership. Often that fell to the oldest guy in the group. And John is somewhat coddled. And when John writes about his experiences with Jesus, he says, I'm the beloved disciple. In fact, when John talks about Jesus, the number one thing that becomes clear is that there's a deep love between them. You don't have to know a whole lot about John, maybe except for this, to know really how Jesus felt about him. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, 
he looks to John and he says, John, take care of my mom. Now, you don't have to know a lot about John, but you get a little insight into what Jesus had to think about John in that exact moment. But also, John is with Jesus at seminal moments in the experience of Jesus living the life. It's Peter, James, and John, the inner circle. John gets to hear Jesus give all the insight. Jesus would tell a parable, and John would be over here, and Jesus would explain it to them. That would have been cool. At one point, John has lunch with Jesus, and while they're having lunch, Moses and Elijah, guys that have been dead for hundreds of years, show up. That would have been awesome. And they all sit around together, and they talk about stuff. That's pretty cool. John writes the Gospel of John. He writes the letters 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in your New Testament. And he writes the book of Revelation that we have here. In fact, we're not really sure the whole order, but it's possible that the letters came first, and then the book of Revelation, and then the Gospel of John. We don't 100% know. One of the coolest things about John is that history tells us, and it's pretty dependable, although I wouldn't you know, die for this, but it's pretty dependable that at some point, John, because of the visibility and his influence of his leadership, John is boiled alive. Like you got to not like somebody a whole lot to put him in boiling water. And he survives and he gets out and rather than being quiet, he continues his work and his, his steadfastness of his journey So he's not like Peter who's putting his foot in his mouth and makes mistakes and has to be restored. I'm confident John wasn't perfect and there's some growth in his development. And we know that there's a handful of moments he didn't understand things and Jesus corrects him. But it's almost as if John just has this steady testimony of constant growth over the course of his lifetime as a disciple of Jesus and his influence and his leadership grows. John has what I like to call a boring testimony. I pray for you, all of you, to have a boring testimony. I want my kids to have boring testimonies where they basically give their lives to Jesus and they say, hey, I'm following Jesus with my life. And that produces in them a certain amount of what most of us would call boring, but awesome and influential and powerful impact of life over time. So John rose to the ranks of leadership. And at the time he writes the book of Revelation, there are at least seven churches that are under his watchful eye. He has direct oversight of them. We're going to find out their names over the next couple of weeks, and we're going to find out what he had to say to them. And it's pretty potent what he says to them. One of them, for me, one of the proofs the Bible is reliable is that when it talks in important ways to its key characters and its key places, its key audiences, it doesn't sugarcoat stuff. So John's going to talk from God to these churches in ways that isn't positive and pretty. He's just going to tell the truth about where they really are. And as we investigate them, we're going to discover some things about what's important to Jesus and what we can know about what should be important to us. But it isn't all good. And here I am thinking, if I'm the leader of these seven churches and I have to write a letter to them revealing what God thinks about them, I'm going to be like very careful to make it sound as sweet and positive as possible. Not John. He's just like, here's what Jesus thinks about you. It's not all good. Some good, not all good. And we're going to have a chance to plow through that stuff. So John is boiled alive. He lives and he continues to lead. The Roman government is so frustrated with him that they send him to a rock in the middle of the Mediterranean. In modern times to get there, it's about two hours by motorboat. And if you get there, it's going to, you're going to waste a little bit of time. You're going to lose your lunch a few times because it's in the middle of the open sea. And it's a big rock sticking up out of the water. There's not much vegetation there. It literally is a desolate place. And the idea was, is we'll put John there and he'll have a hard time writing because he likes to write these letters. And even if he does, it's going to be months. It's really going to slow him down. And most people who go to Patmos end up dying anyway because of the conditions are harsh. There's no vegetation to block the wind. The wind coming across is rough. There's waves. It's just a really ugly place to spend your final days. And here's John, probably, catch this, probably close to 100 years old, having been boiled alive, given his life for Jesus. And it's a really, really ugly situation. He's having a really, really rough time. He's on this little island called Patmos. And it's there on a Sunday morning, which for the Christian church had begun to be called the Lord's Day. 
That was the day Jesus resurrected from the dead. Most of them were Jewish, so they spent the seventh day of the week in synagogue kind of doing their Jewish thing. But the first day of the week, how they started their week early in the morning was doing the Lord's work on the Lord's day. So they would stand in the temple courts often and proclaim. They'd go out into the villages and do the church work. The first day was given to the Lord. And ever since then, Christians have been worshiping on Sunday. That's just the way that happened, honestly. And so John is on Sunday, on the Lord's day, spending time with God in the middle of a really ugly situation. And the Bible says that the Spirit of God visited John. And then an angel comes. We'll read these passages. That's what's going on. That's the situation. And while that's happening, John is having a rough time, but not just John. These churches he cares about, they're being persecuted from the outside. And that's ugly, ugly, ugly. But that's not what's on his heart. What's on his heart is what's happening inside the churches. It's one thing to have stuff on the outside, but what's happening on the inside. And that's what John's going to spend his time on. Over the next few weeks, if you'll read chapter 1, 2, 3, and the first part of chapter 4, you'll discover what the Lord tells John is important to be going on in the churches. So there are seven churches, so there's going to be seven specific communications representing kind of the scope of John's leadership. And when people study this particular book, they talk about the genre of leadership that it's in. What we mean by that is like, what's the type of literature? Is this just stories? Often like the Gospels, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John contain stories of Jesus and sayings of Jesus. Is it an epistle, like a letter that Paul wrote to the churches about a specific things? And in many ways, there are some stories here. And John does kind of start it like it's a letter to the churches that he cares for. It starts much like an ancient letter. But the early Jewish followers of Jesus had a piece of literature in their Old Testament that was unlike any other piece of literature, the book of Daniel. The first several chapters of the book of Daniel are awesome stories. They're the kind of stories you tell your kids, Daniel in the lion's den, the three Hebrew children, the story of not eating the king's meat and defiling themselves, but eating only the food God telling them to eat and being stronger and wiser at the end of the time period. Great stories. But then all of a sudden you turn the page in Daniel and the scenery changes. And Daniel starts talking in terms of imagery and metaphor and visions and dreams, like some crazy psychedelic movie, you know, some 1960s drug-induced vision. And that wasn't, but that's kind of the imagery that get, and and there's mythological creatures that take on special meaning. And so every early reader of the book of Revelation, all of them Jewish, had Daniel. And when they read John's stories and they get past chapter three, it's just like they turn the page in the book of Daniel. It goes into metaphor and imagery. And they realize there's a a name for this type of literature, this genre. It's called apocalyptic literature, where we're going to talk about real things. In fact, things that are more real than almost anything else, but we're not going to use exact scientific language to describe them. It's not going to be like a newspaper article from the future telling what happened in the past. It's not going to be like that at all. It's going to be images and colors and movements of people, and that's going to reveal for us deep, important truths. But it's going to require a certain amount of interpretation. That's the type of literature this is. Now, this is not the only place in the New Testament where we get this. If you go in your Bible to Mark chapter 13, Jesus does the exact same thing. And so when Jesus does it, it validates that it's okay to do it. John does it. But the early Christian church, there was very little gap between their understanding and their culture and the language that John is using. In other words, when they read it the first time, they understood more than it's easier for us to understand today. It was easier for them than it is for us because they were closer to the, and they were already familiar with this type of literature. So that's kind of the background of this story. So when you get into this book, there's going to be some stuff that's crystal clear, black and white, ain't going to take a lot of effort. And today we're going to spend a lot of time there. But as you press in, there's some other stuff that does require a certain amount of holding loosely the details so that you can get the bigger picture. And this is the way a lot of art is done. 
The message is not in the unique details, but it's in the general movement of the piece of literature that the truth of what's trying to be conveyed is there. All right, so that's a little bit of background about our book. But I want to give a little special encouragement today to Four Corners Church. So in 13 and a half years, I haven't spent a lot of time here from the stage. I've done some classes and a handful of things. And when we get done with this, um, you, I hope, will have a couple things happen to you. I'm going to go ahead and lay my cards on the table. I'm going to hope that God reveals to you, if he'll empower me, and you're open, God reveals to you a bigger picture of him. Because more than anything else, more than anything else, that's what this book is about. That God is big, that God is awesome, and there's no force in this world, above the world, below the world, beside the world, there's no force in this world that can overwhelm the movement of what God wants to get done. He's that big. And the second thing that I hope will happen to you is, is that you'll get a sense that this world as we know it really is coming to an end. What that means is that this world is not the most important world. That anything going on in your life right now, anything is going to come to an end except for your relationship with Jesus. This book makes two major points. God is big and there's another world coming. And what we do in this world is going to impact that world, but that world is 10 times more important. It's more important because it's going to last forever. This world is temporary. That world is permanent. This world, whatever pains and joys that we experience are only hints at the pains and joys to be experienced in the world to come. And this book spans the gap between where we are today and where all of us are going to be in the future. And that's why so many people really try to figure it all out, because you know how we're wired. If we can figure it all out... We can control it. Some of you remember from your middle school years and you took biology and you were introduced to what's called the scientific method. I'm not going to go into all of it, but the scientific method is a method by which you process certain data hypothesis in an attempt to prove the hypothesis, right? But that's not the final step of the scientific process. The final step of the scientific process is to be able to control by what you've learned certain other results. So some people dive into this book in an attempt to know it, understand it, leverage it, sometimes for good, sometimes just out of fear. Because when we think about the future, we all know we're powerless. But if we could have access to, to the blueprint of the future, wouldn't it empower us? And this book says an emphatic, yes, it can. But it may not be in the way that you're expecting. So with that said, let's park ourselves in Revelation chapter 1. On the screen, in your Bible, on your phone, in your message notes, we're going to pause all the way through. We're not going to get very far, all right? So here we go. Here's what it says. The revelation from Jesus Christ. It's interesting. A lot of times, just kind of casually, people will call the book Revelations. Sometimes I'll even slip and do that. It's really not. This book is one revelation. One revelation. A lot of themes. One revelation. And in our English Bible that I just read from, it says the revelation from Jesus Christ. You might be holding a Bible and it will literally say it this way. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Apocalypto Jesus Christos, right? The revelation of Jesus Christ or from. And the Greek language in which the Bible was originally written allows for both. So which is it? Is it a revelation from Jesus or is it a revelation of Jesus? Well, if you read the content of the book, it's clear that it's both. Jesus himself is going to visit his friend John on the Isle of Patmos while he is in solitary confinement in the worst of conditions. He's going to visit his friend and give him a revelation. So it's from Jesus. And when he gives him the revelation, the content of it is all going to be about Jesus. It really is. You may want to write this in your message notes. I, I want to give you a couple of, uh, of guiding principles for everything you read in this book. All right? That's going to help you. That's going to help you wade through a lot of crud that a lot of people do with this book. Here's the first question you should ask every time you read a passage in the book of Revelation. And in fact, you can do this with every passage in the Bible. What does this passage tell me about Jesus? 
What does this passage tell me about Jesus? Now, that's a very different question than what does this passage tell me to do? We're going to get to that one. We're going to get to that one. But what does this passage tell me about Jesus? This whole book, all 22 chapters, is about Jesus. So everything you read, the first question is not, who's the beast? What does 666 mean? When's he coming back? That is not the first question. Those are not the first five questions. The first question is, is what do these words tell me about Jesus? And if you read it that way, it begins to make more sense. Here's the second question. It's part of why, by the way, I believe God chose John to get this revelation. John had given his life not only to Jesus, but to Jesus' church. It's like John would say to us today, you really can't love Jesus and hate his church. It doesn't work. I mean, maybe you can go to heaven, but you're missing it. You're raw walking in disobedience. You're literally a bad Christian and you don't get it if you try to love Jesus and hate his church. You're just a bad Christian. Bad Christians, but you know, bad Christians still go to heaven, right? They're just bad Christians. And a lot of the people that you call hypocrites aren't hypocrites at all. They're just bad Christians. And we don't want to call them bad Christians because we can't call that stuff out anymore. But the truth is, is the reason we can be so honest about that is a lot of times I'm a bad Christian and you're a bad Christian and thank God bad Christians still get to go to heaven. But for John, John would say, here's the deal. You can't just love Jesus. It's not just you and Jesus doing your own thing. It's Jesus gave his life for his bride, the church. And John then gave his life for the bride of Christ and for Christ. They were together. They were united. And so the second question to ask yourself as you read the book of Revelation, number one is, what does it tell me about Jesus? Number two is, what does it tell me about the church? What does it tell me about the church? John is a church leader. He's getting a revelation of Jesus. And the first thing Jesus tells him to do is, I want you to tell the seven churches that you have responsibility for, I want you to give them this bold, direct truth. I want you to talk to them honestly and directly. And when we read it today, the context has changed, the setting has changed, the, the, the timing has changed. But man, when we, when we plow through this stuff the next few weeks, you're going to discover just how relevant a 2,000-year-old book can be. It's powerful. It's potent. It's relevant. It's real. The, the truth is, is, if you do the Bible right, you don't have to make the Bible relevant. That's a lie. The Bible is relevant. We just have to show it and preach it with clarity and boldness. Not to make the Bible relevant. It is relevant. And when we plow through the challenges and the opportunities in these seven churches, you're going to see it with crystal clarity. The revelation from Jesus Christ, of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what, what must soon take place. Wow. Wow. So now we're going to talk about the future. But let me give you two more principles of engagement, all right? So there's a a branch of theology called hermeneutics. You don't need to know that word, but it simply means interpretation. How do we interpret Scripture? Some people say, I just do the Bible. I just do what it says. I I hear you. I love the heart behind that. But the truth is, is all Scripture has to be interpreted. It all does. Every bit of it has to be interpreted. There's a whole science behind that, and actually that's very healthy, it's good. We use scripture to interpret scripture, and so all scripture is interpreted. And here's two big principles for interpreting scripture. Ready? The first question to ask when you're trying to interpret scripture, right, the meta question is this. What did this passage mean to the original audience? First question is not, what does this passage mean to me? That's really good when you're in eighth grade, you're sitting around a Bible study, and the youth pastor hasn't prepared his work. So he says to the kids, hey, what's your favorite verse and why? That's awesome. That's lazy. All right? It's awesome, but lazy. So what happens here is is that we miss the power of Scripture because we don't do the hard work of interpreting it the way that we have been instructed scripturally to interpret it. The first thing to know about the book of Revelation is it was a written piece of of literature to a specific audience, those seven churches. 
So when we read the phrase, things that must soon come to pass, we have to remember this document is 2,000 years old. When John first wrote it, it was about things soon to come to pass. But it's very possible that over 2,000 years, a lot has already come to pass. In fact, I'm going to suggest to you it has. But not everything has come to pass, but a lot has. So when we, 2,000 years later, read the book of Revelation, a lot has already happened. It has. A lot is happening, and a lot is yet to happen. And I don't know which pieces of the document fall into which categories, but for John's audience, after chapter 3, which was a description of where they really are today, pretty much everything was future. Not necessarily true with us. But if you pick up the Bible and you're just eager and you read that phrase, things that must soon come to pass, and you don't think about the fact that this is a piece of literature that we've had for 2,000 years and had the ability to study, and there's a lot of good thinking that's gone into it already, and there's a lot of books you can buy to read and figure it out. If you don't do that, what you do is you try to start forcing everything that you read in this 2,000-year-old document to be about the future. And it may be, but it's not likely all. So the first thing is, what did it mean to that original audience? Then the second principle of hermeneutics or interpretation is, is, then what does it mean today? I take what it did mean, and that begins to inform what it does mean. I take the details of what it meant, and we begin to extrapolate principles. So what does it mean today? And when you do that, you're rightly dividing the word of truth. That's what the Bible says. You're using scripture to help understand scripture. This keeps one verse that's kind of on the fringe from setting an entire doctrine. The danger with that is, is if you take every verse as equally important and you don't run it through the filter of every other verse of scripture, you don't look at all that God says. You read, for instance, Mark chapter 16, the final 12 verses, and you read the phrase that says, and they will pick up snakes. And do you know what you do with that? By the way, under your seats right now, there are boxes. That's how that happens. It's just bad, it's just bad hermeneutics. Scripture interprets Scripture over time. We ask, what did it mean? Then we ask, what does it mean? All right? Now, that's Bible study. There's devotional approaches to Scripture. That, they're fine, too. Hey, I just need something encouraging, so I go to the book of Psalms. That's fine. That's a devotional, but that's not Bible study. All right? Or hey, what does this verse mean to you? That's a good devotional approach to scripture. It's not Bible study. We're doing for the next few weeks, Bible study. All right. So the revelation from Jesus, which God gave him to show his servants, what must soon come to pass. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. Angel. Wow. Angelon in the Greek. Messenger. In the Bible, it's clear that there are angelic beings. Now, in our culture, there's a lot of talk about angels. But the Bible makes it clear that angels don't have the attributes of God. They are not all-powerful. They're not omnipresent. They're not omniscient. They don't know all things. But they do have a certain amount of eternity in them. That is, they're, they are you know, beings that once they were created, they'll last forever. But they're also good and bad. There are good angels and bad angels. They were all good, but some chose to rebel and walk with the rebellion. But in the Bible, they have two purposes, the good ones. They're messengers. In fact, the word angelon means messenger, messengers. And in the Bible, angels are often bringing messages from God to God's people. That's what happens to John. There's an angel that comes. So they don't just give messages. They minister. They minister. In our culture, there's a bit of a preoccupation with angels. And I'm pastoral word here. I'm going to get off topic for just a minute. So, like, there's just real wisdom to not play with spiritual things that are outside the bounds. So this idea of seeking angels and seeing angels everywhere, that gets really, really weird. And ultimately, it gets unhealthy spiritually. Because every time angels show up, they point people back to God, back to the Father, back to Christ. Everything that this angel is about to show John, it's not about the angel. It's not about John. It's about Jesus. Now, I don't, I don't want to like blow anybody's personal theology here. You know, I want to like put a scab over your heart today or wound you so much with what I'm about to say you don't listen to anything else. But I just want to say... Like, you, we don't play with, we don't flirt with spiritual forces that are outside the bounds spiritually. We pray to Jesus. 
We get promptings by his spirit. The Bible does say that on occasion God will send angels. And many times the Bible says that we'll entertain angels, but we won't be aware of it. Which is just interesting. I don't know how that works out. But for followers of Jesus, your access to God is not through an angel or another person. It is directly to the Father through his son, Jesus. That's how that happens. And so we pray right to the Father through the empowerment and the work of the son, Jesus. And whatever God wants to do with angels, we can. He can. Angels or fallen angels, maybe you call them demons, whatever, but the, 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 the dark forces, that stuff that's supposed to have a healthy fear and respect, not that we're afraid of it, but we are afraid to let that stuff get close to us. That's all through the New Testament. So John is going to get a message by this angel, and I love what it says. Uh, this message is going to come to his servant, John. I think that's part of why John gets the message. Because he really has this servant's heart. He's going to serve Jesus and he's going to serve the church. This runs counter to, I think, kind of Western American culture of Christianity. That says somehow church is all about me. And the gospel is really all about me. And Jesus is here as my therapist to make me feel better. Now the good news is sometimes it is going to help you. And sometimes Jesus is a therapist. And, but that is such a small vision of God. And you can't read this book very far, the book of Revelation, without coming face to face with the conflict between the common characterization of God and how he interacts with people and the biblical characterization of God and how he interacts with people. God is not here for you to have an easy life. Proof? John has been boiled alive. What else do I have to say? I mean, you may have had a rough day. I, I, you may have had a... I, and it's like, I'm not, okay, so I'm not trying to like belittle any pain in the room. There might be real pain in the room. I'm really sorry about that. And the Lord hears, he hurts, there isn't a tear wasted. Yes. But if anybody had a reason to be about himself, to identify as a victim, to get stuck in what people owed him, it was John. But John knew his purpose, his meaning in life was not to be a victim, to not be described as one who is in constant Therapy for his own self-fulfillment. He was a servant of the agenda of God. And somehow that understanding of his own identity and purpose helped him to pass through the boiling water and sit alone on a rock in the middle of the ocean and still on a Sunday get into the Spirit. John's going to write in the, just a few verses, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Wow. Wow. How, that humbles me when I think about how easy it is for me to be distracted from the agenda that God wants to work in my life. But this book is going to make it crystal clear. You ready for the whole book of Revelation in a sentence? You ready for this? Two words. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. That's what this book is all about. Every major movement, the consistent theme is everything not Jesus is going to hurt, going to get purified, going to get minimized. And everything that is Jesus is going to thrive. No matter what forces are coming against it, it's going to win. And ultimately, it's going to win in a big way. And when the church is with Jesus, it wins. And when the church is for whatever reason, and it shouldn't ever be, but when the church is not with Jesus, it's not going to win. So this angel comes to John, the servant of the Lord, the servant of the Lord's church. That is the servant of God's agenda in his own life and the servant of the agenda of God in the world and gives him this powerful revelation. And when he gives it, John, who testifies to everything he saw, that John's character is beyond repute. He's not up and down like Peter. So if John says it's true, it's true. He has that reputation in the world. So John's going to testify just what he saw. I'm not going to alter. I'm not going to amend. I'm going to tell you what I saw. And people are like, oh, man, if John wrote it, it's trustworthy. We I mean, don't understand it, but it's real. Wouldn't you love to have the force of character like that? That's what servant heartedness to the Lord's agenda in your life and in the church will do. It will bring you an undisputable reputation. Just your servant-heartedness will make people believe that you have force of character. And what is it he's going to see? That is, 
the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Wow. The word of God. Last year at our student mission camp, students just got back, but last year they learned an important thing. Something that we're going to have reinforced for us just in the next few words. The guy that was bringing the message each morning and evening, here's what he said. If you want to hear the Lord talk to you, how many people would like to hear the Lord talk to him? You know, most people are like, I, I, yeah, I've got some questions. I'd like to have the Lord. Here's what he said. You want to hear the Lord talk to you? Here's how you do it. You read the Bible out loud. And when you read the Bible out loud, you'll hear the voice of God. You'll hear the Lord talk to you. Now that sounds simple and perhaps silly, but it's true. It's biblical. Look at verse three, ready? Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. So this morning, I'm a blessed man. I'm a blessed man. Dads, when you read the scripture to your kids, the Bible says you're blessed. Husbands, I mean, when you read the scripture in your home, the Bible says you're blessed. When you're in a small group, ladies, and somebody opens the Bible and they just, just the act of reading out loud the word of God, the Bible says you're blessed. I don't know about you, but if I have a choice of being blessed or not blessed, let me do what I want. I won't be blessed. I don't know all that it means, but I know it's better than being not blessed. But listen, here, dad, here's what's really cool. Here's what's really cool. The Bible says that if you read it aloud, you're blessed. But look at what else it says. And blessed are those who hear it. Wow. Blessed are those who hear it. Not terrified, not obsessed, not casual, laissez-faire, but blessed if you hear it and put it into practice. Take to heart what is written. And then here's what it says. Because the time is near. This life is coming to an end, and there's a way to make this life better, to be blessed in this life, to read aloud the word, to hear it and receive it. One of the ways we know this is Jesus talking because it matches exactly what Jesus said in his parables. The one who hears the word of God and puts it into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on a rock. And the one who hears the word of God and does not put it into practice is like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. We're going to use scripture to interpret scripture. James says, <laughs> do not be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. Same thing. So we're using scripture to interpret. The clear implication is, is we're blessed if we hear what God's trying to say to us today. So there are three big questions for us to both, to both ask, three big questions to ask, and three big things to see as a result of asking these questions. So here's the first one. In what way today do you need to see Jesus? Jesus wears lots of hats. To John, he was friend. He, he, he was partner. They did work together. He, he was a rabbi. But in the book of Revelation, Jesus is going to take his clearest form. When God describes him in the next few verses, there's just light emanating from Jesus. Like he's just radiant. No darkness in him. He's so light that his hair is white. His feet, they're not dirty like he's been walking in the dust. They're like brass that's heated up. It's literally glowing. He's wearing a white robe all the way down. And he's got a golden sash. He's regal. Revelation is going to give a picture of Jesus as he's seen from a heavenly perspective, the real perspective, that he is powerful. And the only word to ascribe to him is Lord. And if he's Lord, guess what it makes us? Servants. Servants. If he's in charge, we're not. And I don't know about you, but I think most of us, let me just speak for me. Most of the time, I don't need friendly Jesus, meek and mild to help me get through my stuff. I need the powerful, risen Savior who has command of the sun and the stars, the wind and the waves. I need that Jesus. And, it, and it's true that he's already there. I just don't see him that way sometimes. The one who's orchestrating the events of life and of all of human history. When you read this book, it's clear. Jesus is orchestrating history to a predetermined end, which means he's orchestrating your life. And when you see him that way, it brings comfort when the chaos of life is speaking loudly. How do you need to see him today? Number two, this is going to seem bold. 
And I don't mean to offend you, but I wouldn't be being honest and loving to you. I wouldn't be being speaking the truth in love if I didn't say this. Number two, here's a big, huge thing to see and ask. Why would you ever stand against him? Why would you ever stand against the work of Jesus in your life? Why? When you read this book, you'll have to close the book if you don't like this, all right? You'll have to close it. Because when you read the book, the forces that rally against Jesus are huge. And he wins. And then they rally again, and he wins. And then they're defeated. And then they rally again, and he wins, and they're annihilated. The the point of this is clear. Stand against Jesus, and it ain't going to go well for you. It ain't going to go well. This is comfort to the church. We talk about Rome as a historical reality because it's over for Rome. But do you know what's still moving forward? The church of Jesus Christ. You can go to the Colosseum today. It's in ruins. I've stood there. It's in ruins. And you can hear all the great stories of how they used to heat and cool it and what the canvas did and how they could raise and lower the floor and how they could fill it with water and do ship battles. Right? It's impressive. But it's just a shadow of what it was. Rome has been defeated. But as you walk into the door of the Colosseum, the south door, right above the door there's a cross and a little mark. That while Rome has been defeated, the mark says, Christianity is still thriving. Yeah, in this life and in the life to come, Jesus is going to win. You want to know the implication? (laughs) If you get a choice, you want to get on this side. That's what you want. It'll be good for you and everything else will be bad for you. You can't read this book. And the reason why a lot of people don't want to read the book, the implication is black and white, crystal clear. Go with Jesus and win. Go against Jesus in any form and it's going to cost you in ways you really don't want to pay. Number three, to followers of Jesus, will you get about what this book, what this writing, what this revelation shows you to be about? There's a certain urgency. This world is winding down. And only what's done for Christ is going to last. Will you get about it? Or are you going to be preoccupied with the temporary stuff of this world? And if you read what happens to the stuff of this world, it's going to be burnt up. It's going to go away. It's not going to last. And only this stuff done for Jesus is. And the clear teaching is, is, all right, I know it's hard, but will you get about what God is about in this world? Will you give part of your purpose? In fact, would you make it your purpose? No matter how you earn a living, will you make it your purpose to be about the agenda of God in this world? That's what this book encourages every follower of Jesus to do. And when you do, the Bible makes it clear, you will win. It's not disputable. It's not suggested. It's a fact. And when the Bible gives its clearest revelation of Jesus, he is victorious and strong, and those who stand with him are as well. And that's always been good news. Always. Why don't you do this? Why don't you set aside your sermon notes, grab out your connect card. Let's take a couple steps together as a congregation. I want to give you a chance today to decide to be with Jesus. Next step A says, today I'm making Jesus my Savior. And here's the important word, Lord, 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 in charge of my life, not me. I'll seek his will, not my own. There is no having him as Savior without having him as Lord. You don't get part of Jesus. He comes in totality into our life when we invite him in. So if you want to do that, I'd ask you to do what the Bible says about you. Confess that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, and you cannot save yourself. No amount of good work makes Jesus like you more. You can be very, very good and very, very lost. But the work of Jesus on the cross once and for all and his resurrection from the tomb can literally change not only life here and now, but the life that really counts, eternity for you. Take the pen, check next step A, put it in the offering bucket when it comes by. We'll pray with you, give you a chance in a minute to to do serious life-altering, eternity-altering work with God. Next step B, today I'm choosing to be baptized. Baptism is going to take special imagery in the book of Revelation. It's a chance to go very public with your faith. And in Rome, in John's day, that could mean death. And they did it by the droves. And today we're worried about what people think about us. Revelation can change that for us. 
So if you need to be baptized, you haven't yet gone public with your faith, check the box. It'll start the conversation. The next three things specifically deal with how we can engage God. So the first one is a prayer. I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite you to pray it with me. You can check the box. I'll send it to you. It says, God, help me to live my life as if I'm aware that you're bringing this world to an end. And that's when real life's going to begin. Help me to live every day. So every day, God, it's Monday. Help me live today as if this world is temporary, that you are permanent, the world you're building is permanent, and help me to live today as if what I'm doing today matters, but it's not ultimately what matters. What ultimately matters is how I'm leveraging today for eternity. Next step, D. It says, hey, I'm going to pray for 4C fathers. Man, I'm proud of you. It's my privilege to be one of you. You're killing it. Compared to most churches, you're killing it, but let me just be bold with you. There's more to do. And it's not that I need it, it's that you need it. You need to follow God fully with your whole life. And we want to pray with you and be an encouragement for you in that journey. So the prayer goes, God, you're a good father. Help the dads in our church to model your love, your compassion, your strength, and your faithfulness. When dads do that, you'll do it imperfectly. But when you do that, it makes your children more able to believe that there's a heavenly father who can do it flawlessly. In fact, it makes them long. When it was good with you, it makes them long for how good it's going to be with their heavenly father always. And when you do it imperfectly, they'll be reminded that there's a father who will never disappoint them. The next step B is an advice, advice and an opportunity for everybody in the room. It says, hey, I'll give an encouraging word to a father in my life. Maybe your dad, maybe your husband, maybe it's a dad in your family circle that you know. Maybe your dad's passed and you can't do it, but you can... It's amazing, ladies. It's amazing the word, a powerful word of encouragement, spoken word of encouragement to men, how it can give it. Most men will rank among their top two love languages, words of encouragement. It's amazing what your words, you do a good job at this. You do better than my dad at that. I wish my father would have acted like this here. I see in you a good man. It's clear you love your family. And I wonder what your positive, encouraging word can mean for a man in our church or a man in your life. Why don't you set your card aside? If you call this church home, it's your opportunity to invest in the ministry here. This week, I got to be with a handful of our pastors in Lookout Mountain, Georgia, right in Chattanooga, right on the Tennessee-Georgia line. And I got to see our students and our student leaders press into God in big ways. Services in the morning, in the evening, and then they serve the local communities in the afternoon. Let me tell you, church, what your investment is providing for I got to hear kids sit around in a circle and with their own words talk about the work of God that they had been observing. One young lady talked about her serving in the food bank where they packed some food. And she saw a man and, her, and his son come in to work. And here's what she said. You know, we carved out a special time to do this, but this dad and son just came as a normal part of their life to serve. And she says... Beyond her years with wisdom, she says, that's really what we should do. Just build serving into our lives. That's what God wants us to do. And I thought, whoo, out of the mouth of babes. Wow. So your investment, it's driving an anchor in the hearts. Do not ever doubt it. Not one penny of your investment in the kingdom of God will be wasted. Thank you for being a faithful and generous church. Let's pray about our next steps and our offering right now. Bow with me, please. Father. Thank you for being a big God. Thank you for revealing yourself in the pages of your word. God, I pray that over the next few weeks, you would reveal yourself to this congregation, that our image of you would enlarge. You would become bigger. We'd see you in your greatness and in your power. And everything else in life would take its appropriate form and shape. God, would you right-size our vision of you? Give us a revelation. God, I want to thank you for the men in this room. It's hard out there, but you're bigger. And I pray that you come alongside each man in their open heart and you would encourage them today. You would speak your love over them, your approval over them. That just as you said of Jesus, they would hear the words, well done, good and faithful. You're my son in whom I'm well pleased. And God, where there's room for them to grow, I pray today they'd make a decision and they would truly be men and they'd press forward. No more waffling, no more back and forth. It's Jesus. God, I pray that your conviction of the Holy Spirit would do its work in this room, calling us 
to what you're calling us to, that it would call people to repentance. It would call people to purpose. I pray that the men of this church would lead the way, that the love and the character of our Heavenly Father would be on display. Grow your work in us. I lift up those men and women that are declaring, Jesus, wash away my sins. Wash away my sins. I can't save myself, so I trust the work of Jesus on the cross and in the resurrection. I trust in that alone to save me. And Father, I ask that you would pour your blessing upon this offering, that it would go far and wide for your kingdom, that lives would be changed. I pray all this in the name of Jesus, God's strong and holy son. Amen and amen.